Mark Levine is a writer, author, and musician who teaches at the University of California at Irvine. He is also a rock and roll artist who's played with Mick Jagger, Chuck D, Michael Fronte, and many musicians throughout the Middle East. He's also the world's foremost expert on rock in the Middle East, and he does a column for Al Jazeera America. Join the conversation with Mark Levine. Hi, and uh, another edition of the Chris Kirkwood podcast. Uh, I'm Bill Cody. And I'm Chris Kirkwood. And we have a very special guest today, uh, Mark Levine, who I have known for a while. Uh, he is... What, what are you not? You're like a musician. You played with uh, Chuck D. You played uh, with Ozil Motley. Uh, uh, lots of Mick Jagger, I read. Um, but you're a professor at the University of California at Irvine. Yeah. You are a columnist for Al Jazeera America. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you are probably... I'm not well-rested. Not well rested. <laughs> well, it's just going to be this intro. It's going to be the whole show. Um, but uh, you're also an expert in uh, affairs of the Middle East and music of the Middle East. And I met Mark when I was taking uh, the Black Lips over the Middle East and working on that. And uh, actually saw you at the show in Beirut. Yeah, that was a great show. It was a lot of fun. That was a blast. Um, if you haven't been to Beirut, you know, despite what you hear, it is an amazing place and you should go. It's the only place in the world, I think, other than Southern California, where you could begin your day skiing and end your day at the beach. Pretty well, sure. and also you can end your day on that one stretch with a bunch of drunk people, too. That, too. Well, <laughs> that's also in California you can do. Exactly. But, yeah, it's a great town. It's like a second home to me. Wow. Well, well, neat. Mark, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's just start the show. Here's the thing. I'll start this off. Where'd you grow up? Well, I was born in Patterson, New Jersey, Okay. Um, which is about 15 miles from New York City. And as soon as I figured out how to get on the bus to New York, New York increasingly became my home. My brother, who was much older than me, already lived there. So I more or less moved in with him. Uh, for most of my teenage years and after I was in the conservatory for a year and then left to go on tour and from then on was more or less based in New York. Conservatory of Music? Uh, Ma yeah, Mason Gross Conservatory. What were you studying? Jazz guitar. Oh, wow, far out. Yeah. So you, do you did you learn a lot? Yeah, I learned a lot. In one year I learned uh, most of the people who started the program didn't make it through the first semester. It was really like a boot camp for, uh, you know, for the jazz special forces. They really wanted to weed people out quick. Right. And I managed to survive, although uh, my roommate, my college roommate moved out because I don't think I showered for the first four months. I just had to practice 20 hours a day just to tread water. So it was a, it was a great, it made me realize I could never be a jazz guitarist, but the skills <laughs> I got out of there stood me uh, quite well, you know, going into New York and trying to make a living as a guitar player. Right. And then you did did you make a living? Yeah, concert? I mean, I I I um I was playing, and then uh, had a band, and we we decided to relocate to Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, it fell apart in Europe. And after a year or so there, um, I came back and and was playing 
some more and and also decided um i missed uh i missed being in school mm-hmm. and and uh went back and um got a degree in religion comparative religion and history essentially and uh then got uh, money to go to grad school and it was a good way to avoid work uh right. or playing weddings with neither right. of which i was very interested in doing so um I was able to go to grad school in New York, you know, and still do the music. Wow, far out. I mean, it's definitely one of the things that I noticed, you know, growing up playing music, right? Because I'm in the Meat Puppets, you know that, right? Mm. And uh, what, I was 19 when we started that. And uh, I was going to community college, you know, just kind of testing the waters there and whatnot. And then quit doing that, you know, and started doing the band full time. But I definitely noticed that I was not uh, like, you know, continuing my education in a way. And, and, and I think one of the cool things about college, I, I, I'm a big fan of bodies of knowledge. You mm. know what I mean? Sure. And, and like uh, college is where you go to that next level of learning about like what people have, you know, the people that have come before this accumulated big bodies of knowledge and whatnot. So why was it that, what, what drove you towards the major that you wound up heading towards that you yeah. got? I mean, um, I always, well, I guess it was Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin? Uh, Led Zeppelin. Probably everything goes back to them. Um, what doesn't? What doesn't? I don't know, actually. Nothing <laughs> worth talking about. Um, but, you know, I, I, I guess it was Jimmy Page's interest in the occult, quite frankly, got me interested in religion. I okay. mean, he was my hero, and if he was into the occult, I started getting into the occult. Uh, I remember being 14 and going to my the rabbi, you know, the temple right. with all these occult books, and he looked at me and said, "Get the hell out of here! Right. Are you insane? You're not supposed to look at this stuff until you're at least 40." Uh, <laughs> like the Kabbalah. I mean, now in LA, everyone does Kabbalah, Kabbalah you know, because Kabbalah. of Madonna and everything. Right. But in reality, you're not allowed to go near that stuff until you're 40 and right. your life is already set, and then you spend your rest of your life. So I was trying to do it at 14. That didn't go over so well, but instead. I, I wound up, uh, when I moved into New York, finding this wonderful store called the Magical Child Bookstore, which was an amazing occult bookshop. Mm-hmm. But it didn't just have occult stuff. It had all kinds of religion books and philosophy books. And mm-hmm. it just got me. I had a great teacher in high school who was a philosopher. And so once I was in college, and I, I realized there wasn't really much more I could do musically. Going There was no point going back to the conservatory because anything else I could learn I basically, you had to learn on the job. You know, there was, wasn't much more I could learn in, 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 uh, in the conservatory to be a professional musician. At that point, I'd learned arranging, you know, all the things I needed to learn that I could do. Um, and I just fell in love with that stuff as I was in college. And then um, I knew a bit of Hebrew. I kept learning Hebrew, and then I started learning Arabic. And, and um, I also was very interested in human rights. Uh, so while I was in college, I started a chapter of Amnesty International and then kind of put the two together. I sort of already knew some Middle Eastern languages with human rights, so it just made sense to uh, to go to graduate school to do sort of the Middle East with a focus on issues related to human rights and um, and history. Do you believe in God? No, not really. No, I always say I don't need to practice religion because I teach it. Right. So, I mean, I, I, find, I find it very fascinating that some people do, and I find that the people I love to be with the most are people of faith who actually live the faith. So if you're, 
you know, if you're with a very progressive, let's say, the base communities in Latin America, you know, these or liberation theologians or, or Muslims. I remember when I was in Tahrir Square during the revolution, some of the imams of the mosques around Tahrir who were risking everything to be in the trenches, or some of the very progressive Jewish rabbis uh, I've, I've worked with in Israel or Palestine. The, I find those people who live the, a real progressive vision of their faith to be people I... I really admire more than anyone, but personally, I don't. I don't have. Uh... Do they believe in God? Do you think? I mean, do they? Do they? You know, I, I mean, I, there's because like faith is almost like a uh, uh, the older faiths, especially. Yeah, is almost uh, a nationality in a way. You know what I mean? It's almost yeah. like as opposed Absolutely. to. So, but I mean, do those people actually believe in like like the you know? I think you, some I of the think people, they believe. I mean, it's a broad. Right. I mean, like, I, I think they believe. Ultimately, some of them do believe in a kind of the traditional notion of there is a God somewhere who, right. who actually has consciousness but, uh, and, and somehow is in charge of everything. But I think others are much more, you know, believe God as a kind of the force for good in the world. And you're sort of by living a, a life that is fighting oppression or, or um, racism or inequality or what have you, if you're living it in the trenches, you are... That's the way you get close to God, in in a sense. I, I think in that sense, they live their 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 faith is lived through the practice of of being, you know, of helping others. Whether or not they think there's a conscious, I don't know. Some people I found when you try to ask them that they don't want to have that discussion because perhaps they don't want to think too hard about it because they probably know it doesn't make sense, especially when you've seen enough of the real world. But it does help them get up in the morning. And keep working. So if that if that's what gets you through the day, it can there be morality without God? Can yeah, you? no, I think. There uh, I mean, obviously can. there can be, right? Yeah, obviously no, I think be. I think absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of immorality because of the idea of God, and there's a lot of immorality for secular reasons. I, I think God, you know, I, I think there was a, a poll that just came out, or a research rather, not a poll, that just showed that religious children. Uh, I think the headline was religious kids are jerks. And the poll basically showed that the more religious children are, the more intolerant they are, the more the more uh, bigoted, the more they the more supremacist in the sense they feel that they and their faith are better than anyone else. And I think there is there is the sense that people who are traditionally religious generally are more bigoted and exclusivist and and intolerant towards others because that's what religions have generally done. But on the other hand, you have people who embrace a more progressive vision of their face. They tend to be among the most open and warm-hearted people. So well, you, I, would, you would think. I mean, I, I went to a Jesuit uh, college prep for high school, right? So I studied a little bit of religion. We took a—I had a theology class and whatnot, and I was, you know— taught by guys that you know wore the the collar the collar and you know and whatnot but i wasn't raised you know very religiously so uh being exposed to that you know, you look at like uh what's going on in the world these days i mean you know religious kids are jerks i mean so much violence happens these days and always has you know in the name of religion and yet mm. having you know what i was exposed to is you know uh, was like, like the New Testament. Mostly, that's the the religious uh, text that I know the most about. You know, I mean, th- that's all about like being really nice. You know, that's very unviolent, exceedingly unviolent. Most of it, you know, most of it. Yeah. You know? 
<laughs> and and yet still, you know, a lot of really you know violent stuff goes down. Um, well, I think also the um, you know let's remember that in the last hundred years, right? Mm-hmm. By far, I mean it's not even close. The the greatest uh, number of deaths come from secular ideologies, right? Mm-hmm. Nazism, right. fascism, Stalinism. Maoism. I mean, you're talking maybe, uh, you know, the, the imperial ideologies in World War One. You're talking about over 100 million deaths that yeah. have nothing to do with religion and nothing. Right. I mean, ISIL is, you know, what we're fighting now is not even a drop in the bucket. It's right. not even in the bucket. Right. When you think, you know, radical Islam has, has you know, can't even get in the club right. uh, in terms of the amount of death and destruction that have. Oh, a little. I mean, even under- even compared to, I mean, you know, that's one of the things that's such a, a like a, a dichotomy that I see these days is like how up in arms we are about terrorists. Which I mean, it's reasonable to be you know concerned about that and and the the things that happen you know are, mm. are terrible, absolutely. And yet, still, every year in this country, uh, you know, there's like thirty thousand or something deaths. You know caused by guns you know well, and also the fear you know i mean the tragedy of course yesterday they closed all the la schools right. and not only did it cost 27 million dollars mm-hmm. to close the schools but a child died uh because he was crossing the street uh, you know after they closed the schools and all the chaos and got hit by a truck so i mean you know even the threat of terrorism leads to more chaos that produces more Violence. And isn't and, that what terrorism's goal is yeah, ultimately? Though absolutely. I mean, it, doesn't that, isn't that how it works? You yeah, know. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's one of the things that was a shame the, the way that we handle this situation. I don't, and, and it confuses me that people are so willing to put up with as much gun violence that goes on that isn't based on you know uh, on any on any particular religion. It just happens to be somebody you know flipping out and deciding to go off. You know, and uh, you know to the tune of like thirty thousand yeah. people a year on yeah. average. Four hundred thousand. People have died in gun violence since 9/11. Since 9/11, 400,000. 400,000. And, and, and I, I just posted uh, Saturday Night Special by Skinner on my Facebook yeah. page because a lot of them are handgun deaths, and and Skinner was saying it in the 70s. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And Mar- and now more Americans are opposing an assault weapons ban than ever before. So the more violence there is, this is the insidiousness of it. Oh, the yeah, more well, the people. Black Friday, right. they sold the most right. guns ever. they sold in. Yeah, right. like ever. ever. Right. It's I like... mean, the worse it gets, the more. And that's something the NRA knows. And that's the. I mean, you know, the. the I mean, listening to the Republican debate last night, you know, they're talking about billions and billions to spend carpet bomb ISIL. Why don't we carpet bomb the NRA? I mean, if you want to go for the true terrorists, and they work on the same principles, generate fear and hatred, arm everyone, and have them have them be ready to shoot at anyone for almost no reason. This we, is, we, we this started is, out with, like, going to conservatory, but real quick, I mean, that is, yeah. one, of the, that is one of the things that concerns me the most. And, and I, I've talked with Mark about this over the years, though, but the, the, the other part of it is the amount of weapons that we have poured into the Middle East. Oh, it's insane. And it is just... Insane. That's the root of everything. Yeah, it's like you pour weapons, and we poured them into the Balkans, and um, yeah. uh, and that's why I was trying to take music there because yeah. I think music is more important than guns. Well, I'm you know, sure that, I mean, I'm not sure the uh, powers that be think that, but yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, listen, um, and it's not Democratic or Republican, right? The the the, the presidential candidate this. This round, this, this cycle, who's received by far the most money from weapons manufacturers is Hillary Clinton. It's not a Republican. 
And, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the arms industry owns our foreign policy. And, you know, the U.S. is about to sell another few billion to Saudi Arabia, which is the state that is most responsible for creating and maintaining the terrorists we say we're fighting. So, I mean, and they're not stupid. They know that. So, you know, this is a game. This is a game that enables untold profits and power for those who are in the position to benefit from it. And so, the rest of us are screwed. Do you think it matters? Which? All of it. Anything. Life. Does life matter? Is there a point to this? Does it matter? Well, I don't know. I mean, I know I have kids, so I have to make it matter a little bit so that uh, somehow I can look them in the face. But, I mean... Are you, are, are you trying to make it matter? Are you trying to make things better? I mean, trying, you know, somehow. I mean, uh, I think, you know, what you, what you were talking about, Bill, uh, going to Lebanon with the band and trying to create this kind of... Um, this kind of connections between people that transcend the violence is is of course the only hope whether whether that only hope actually is a hope i uh, i don't know but i i always feel like i always feel like um essentially like you know like i'm a character in the plague you know in camus the plague mm -hmm. i mean it's just you know you're gonna you know you're gonna lose you know you can't right. beat it but you keep fighting because the, there's nothing else to do have you, you ever read uh, have you ever read um uh, Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Now we're talking about stuff that I really love. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> That's such a great book. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think it's, you have to, you maintain your humanity um, the you can. through fighting, I mean, through the struggle. Otherwise, what what else is there? I mean, then right. you, unless you can afford to check out, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who, who can afford, especially around here, who can afford to just check out and not really be concerned because... Um, because they don't have, they don't, they don't have to think about it. Um, I think for everyone else, it's not really an option. You're, you're stuck in the mud. You have to figure out a way how to get out of it. And do you think that that now do we do, do we decide to do that, or is it just because of the creatures that we are? Well, I don't think all of us decide to do it because I think a lot of people succumb. I mean. Listen, isn't it like, it's like, I mean, that was the brilliance of the first Star Wars, right? You know, the, the force, the dark side can, is so seductive. It's so easy to not, it's so much harder to, to go to the light than to the dark. It's, I mean, I think, I think in a way that's one of the things, while I'm not religious, and I, um, although I went to a Catholic school like you, Franciscans, um, instead of Jesuits, so they were wearing robes. Oh, uh, sweet! Um, they were the guys <laughs> for easy the brown, access, baby. Uh, brown robes and and uh, you know, and uh, robes. They have pockets in their sleeves, the Franciscans. Yes, yes, I they do. I was just at a it's retreat, and he was mentioning yeah. they have pockets so they can. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Talk about if you were to shoplift. Well, if they're a, if a they're Franciscan I Irish, robe is what yeah, you should wear. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, but one of the things I think is very interesting and very, you know, about this idea of original sin is not that there's actually sin because of Adam and Eve and all that, but it's a psychology. It's this recognition that also comes from ancient Judaism as well, this sort of evil tendency. There is something about us that so easily goes bad, you know, allows for all the negative, the most negative parts of our nature to dominate us. And it's a struggle to not allow that to take over. Is it maybe because, you know, maybe that uh, there is no better good? I mean, that just that, just that there is no better good? I mean, because, you know, like as a, as a historian, 
you know, I mean, at what point did we decide that there was a bad or a good? You know, when did we stop eating each other? You know what I mean? That well, kind of this thing. is a great, yeah, I mean, this is a great question. And, and um, one of my favorite philosophers, uh, Nietzsche, had, you know, uh, spent a lot of his career trying to differentiate between, you know, good and bad and, and evil, you know, and moral and immoral. And really, what's the difference between bad and immoral? And, and you know, part of, I think part of the issue is, what we define as bad changes so much, and what we define as good changes over time. You know, it used to be good to kill, you know, to conquer as much of the planet as possible. Even 10 years ago, it was good to have a Hummer, you know, and now, you know, no self-respecting person uh, would drive a Hummer. You know, I mean, the morality changes. It's so situational. Um, I guess... I guess, you know, the one thing that's changed now that we live in this era of, of real globalization where for more than any time before what goes on anywhere really can have an impact everywhere else is that, you know, if you're engaging in activities that are clearly bad for the majority of the planet, you can't rationalize that as good anymore. Even if it's good for you, you might get richer or you might feel better because you're doing it there's there's a larger issue at stake which is everyone else and that to me would be the you know that that supersedes every every religious morality or ideas or political morality you know it's what is going to cause the most harm <coughs> if you're doing things that are causing that clearly are not helping you're part of the problem and and you know the rest of us have a right to be pretty pissed off right but how much you know how much how much can we do about it, considering the you know that you know how how well armed they all are? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, ultimately, you know what I mean. No, I, ultimately, most of us can't do very much. Yeah. I mean, I I don't you know it's I guess it goes you know is there a basic survival instinct enough like as we saw with the recent climate talks in Paris you know to to before it literally is too late to stop right. disaster well, that we would actually do, you think, do something. Well, do you think, I mean, what do you, so evolutionarily, I mean, do we stand a chance? What do you think? Do you think people stand a chance? Will we be here in... Uh, I think we'll be here. I mean, I think... Yeah, in a million I years. Well, I don't think we'll be humans anymore. No, I mean, we'll evolve in some way. Yeah, but, but, but ultimately, I don't think the, the line is going to end unless the rock... You but know, I mean, because lines end, lines end completely and entirely. To the, they, do. they do, but I mean, you know, like the dinosaurs mostly died out, but there's yeah. alligators, right, and birds, know, and birds. Yeah. So you know, you know, I remember reading uh, what was that one book by uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut? What was it called? Uh, I'm not going to be able to remember. It was the one where uh, people have gone ahead and uh, 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 oh, it's called Galapagos, and, oh, sure. and they've gone ahead and uh, nuclear war has happened, right? And we've gone ahead and. Lit, lit the planet up and ourselves up and you know and, and, the, and the ensuing radiation you know the fallout from the all the bombs and whatnot has has mutated people into these fur seal like creatures that lay around on the beach you know and whatnot mm -hmm. and 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 the only human trait that they retained is that they all still laughed when one of them farted <laughs> <laughs> which you know I get that's that's funny. So, so. Well, that's one that's one scenario. <laughs> that's one scenario. So, you know, so, it, it, you know, soiling green is people. Yeah. <laughs> Real quick, because we're because um, we're we're talking with somebody who's been on the ground over there. Uh, when's the last time you were in the Middle East? A few months around? ago. A few months ago. I know Do you, you feel safe over there. The yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
I mean, unless I'm not. I mean, it depends if I'm deliberately going somewhere where I know it's not safe. Not safe. But, but in general, on the street or something, I don't ever feel any more unsafe than I would in a similar setting in the right. U.S. See, that's people always ask me when I was traveling in the Middle East a lot. Like, don't you feel unsafe? And I... It's just like, God, what are you talking about? Like, we but, live in but, America. You, this place you, is fucking nuts. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I, I never really felt unsafe. The, the most, the two most unsafe things was when I was in a car with a cab driver going the wrong way down the free, the highway. Okay, that would bother, that would, that would bother yeah. me. And the other time is I went out and visited some people by the border, and they were... It was a bunch of smugglers, and they were, like, waiting for sundown. Yeah. And uh, so they were, like, s- kind of sleeping and talking, and I went for a walk, and, and then I hear them all yelling, Hey, 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 Bill, Bill, Bill. And I'm like, and I'm like what? And they're like, there's landmines up there. And I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, now that you should have told me. And believe me, I was trying to remember exactly how I'd walk <laughs> up there. It's like, yeah, and yeah. it's really hard, because you're like, how did I walk up here? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's where Arabic might have helped. <laughs> Arabic might have helped. Uh, you yeah. know, the, the the big sign in Arabic that said landmines. <laughs> you didn't get that. <laughs> I guess is that, that, is that, that Burger have... King? Am I, am I going the right way? <laughs> right. No, they, no, I mean, listen, I remember being in Baghdad a couple of years ago, and it was during the wave of uh, car bombings. And, you know, you could see from my hotel every night, you could literally just see, you know, poof, poof. Right. You know, you could see the bombings. Um but I mean, unless, but even even with that, first of all, you know, we're it's, they're pretty much confined to certain areas of the city, and also, even with all the killing in a place like Baghdad, the per capita rate of violent death was higher in Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Right now than in Baghdad. Uh, Juarez, so, you know, Juarez. Well, forget about that. Yeah, no. that's a whole that you legitimately probably could ask. Dude, right, fuck it. Los Angeles. Mark's not going to Juarez. Yeah. Los Angeles. No, I'm not. Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Baghdad's one thing. Juarez. How about Los Angeles? Like the late yeah. 80s and early yeah, I mean, 90s? Well, I, I remember I was living jumping. in Harlem then, and, uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty crazy. So, I mean, no, the safety issues. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you're in an active war zone, it's uh, it yeah. Can be, I mean, Syria uh, is obviously unsafe. Not a... I was in the occupied territories earlier this year and at a protest against um, against uh, some land thefts, um, and uh, I almost I thought I would that that uh, the Israelis uh, fired just so much tear gas, and it was a new kind of tear gas which I hadn't experienced before, and for the first time. I thought I, that was a moment I thought it was over because I just got surrounded by it and started just fading. Like I could feel the, I felt like I was being poisoned. Um, uh, it wasn't just making me teary or cry or, or sneeze or even vomit. It was, uh, it was almost like there was a nerve agent in it. And I just started feeling my brain start to shut down. That was, that was the one moment in a long time where I felt, oh, this is it. And but someone grabbed me and pulled me out of the gas before it got any worse. So, but I mean, I wa- I knew what I was getting into when I walked in. That it was a protest where the Israelis always fire rubber bullets and tear gas. So you know, no one. Well, what's your feelings about Israel? Well, um, are you Jewish? I'm Jewish. Yeah, um, I I think Israel, you know, is like most of the states. In the region, and and certainly like America before uh, the civil rights era, is a country that tragically built on a history of racism and dispossession. Um, you know, this is my field. I was a history a historian of Israel to begin with, so I know the history well. It was, you know, built on a conflict which is totally understandable between two national movements. 
you know, one of which had a lot more support and power and managed to, uh, you know, get rid of a large share of the other, meaning Jews versus Palestinians. And, you know, sadly, to this day, the occupation uh, it has, you know, destroyed whatever remained that was really democratic and progressive about Zionism has been eaten away uh, by the occupation. And, you know, unfortunately, it just makes Israel like pretty much every other country there. The, I mean, there's no... The, the Egyptian government does the same things the Israeli government does. The Saudi government's even worse. The Moroccan or Jordanian governments, I mean, they all, they all oppress large numbers of people under their power. Uh, it's just with all the other countries, no one, bo no one bothers to pretend they don't. But Israel has this aura of still being a kind of Western progressive state. Of course, Western states don't do much better. Look what we we invaded Iraq and, and basically killed tens of thousands of people and caused a war that we're still suffering from, never mind what Iraqis are going through. So I don't find Israel to be any worse than most other countries, but it is what it is. And the problem is too many people still want to deny that. And, and that you know, that enables the occupation to continue. And in the end, the people who suffer the most aren't just Palestinians. They're Israelis because it's, it's killing the, it's killing, you know, whatever remains of a, of a, of a Zionist Jewish identity that any, most people would want to identify with. Why the fuck can't people get along, do you think? Well, it's, it's a very simple there. It's, it's territory. You know, the heartland of Palestine is the biblical heartland of Israel. And, and Jews, the, you know, a large share of Jews want that territory, and it happens to have a lot of Palestinians on it who don't want to give it up. So it's history, it's people hearkening back to history and trying to implant, uh, you know, uh, uh, make the modern world fit to this historical model? Well, they just want their... T I mean, you know, Judy, there are certain... certain kinds of Jews who have certain beliefs, certain kinds of Zionism who believe that... This lamb was given, and it's in the Bible, which they take literally, by God to Jews. And therefore, no one else has the right to live there, and they have the right. They do. And so anyone who's there is, by definition, illegal, a usurper. Uh, one of the terms they always use is uh, a renter. They're like a renter in your house, and now you've come back. It's time for the renter to go. I mean, that's the language that has been used for 80 years towards Palestinians. Of course, if you're Palestinian, you know, you've been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, so... and DNA tests show that the closest people to the ancient Jews are actually the present-day Palestinians. So, you know, for them, they've been there since long before anyone started figuring out uh, where you come from. So their roots are equally deep, if not deeper, since they literally have physically been there, not just have a religious idea of it. And they don't want to leave, not, not surprisingly. So then the, then the question becomes, well, then... Either, you know, historically speaking, usually in these kind of contests, one side wins and the other side disappears. You know, the Indians here, the Native right. peoples here, you get pushed off, you get pushed into reservations, or like happened uh, in, in South America, you basically genocide. You yeah. just disappear because of disease and, and, and imperialism, and you just, you leave the pages of history. Uh, Palestinians have not left the pages of history. Israel was never strong enough or willing to literally just wipe them out. So now you have two peoples sharing one land. And the normal way of having a nation, which is one people in one land, doesn't work because neither side wants to get out of the land that both sides want. So until, until both sides are willing to figure out a new way, 
to live together, you know, where both can have the same rights and neither side can um, oppress the other, you're going to have this conflict. And, and the problem is, if it's a problem, uh, you know, the, the stronger side is strong enough to avoid compromising, but not strong enough simply to wipe out the weaker side. And the weaker side is too weak to change anything, but not so weak that it can simply be flushed aside. Right. And here we are. You know, this is the disaster. But I mean, in the end, you know, it is an illegal occupation. So if Israel wants to maintain it, it's going to have to give citizenship to the Palestinians, but that's going to be the end of Which Zionism. is the illegal occupation? Well, I mean, the occupation of the West Bank, for example, it, it, is the, illegal. The, that's the Israeli Israeli occupation. It violates international law. It's right, not right. legal. If if it wants to, ha it can't. What it's basically done for fifty years is eat its cake, and still have it. Right. But eventually, there's no more cake left. And which is where we're at now, literally at the 50th anniversary next year, so or in a year and a half. So what are, what are you going to do? And and this is what Israeli leaders have more or less admitted. So at some point, they're going to have to, because there's not going to be a division of the territory at this point. They're going to have to, basically, give Palestinians citizenship, and then it'll become a country like every other country with all the problems. But eventually another 20, 30 years, it'll, it'll be normalized. There's no other way it can go. So, you know, long-term prospects, it'll, it'll work out like America, like South Africa, like Australia, every other what we call, scholars call settler colonial society with a large local indigenous population that doesn't disappear. Eventually, I have to reach an accommodation with them and more or less have a normal democracy. That actually hmm. sounds quite hopeful. It, in, until you see, until you go to the reservations and see how those people are living, right. as opposed well, that's, to that's that's you know a very I mean? well. You know, thing. the problem. You know, Native Americans, which I think are, you know, is the greatest genocide in history. And I think, you know, I get very annoyed at people who very really fight about Palestine, and they're really pissed off at Israel. But here we are living, in you know, we are the beneficiaries well, of a genocide. Completely. So if you want it, so I always tell people, listen, if you want to fight for Palestine, that's fine. I do that too. But what have you done for Native Americans? Because you're living on their land. You're no better than a settler. And you so. see what the situation is down in Australia. Sure. With, with the know, Aborigines. With the Aboriginal, yeah, absolutely. You know, peoples there. And, right. And uh, The difference is pretty. Palestinians, you know, if Native Americans were 20% of the U.S. population, right. if they were uh, basically um, 80 million of them instead right. of maybe 3 or 4 million, they would have a lot more power in this country, and their situation would ultimately be a lot better. It's because they were so decimated and able to be closed off into these little reservations that um, that that they've been able. We've been the you know white Americans have been able to just ignore them and just keep keep oppressing them. It's, and it's quite so many a scandal. Them, and so many of them died. You know, initially once we first got right. once once right. You know, well, Europeans that was the first here, shock. Just I mean, the, you just know, the, just smallpox. The disease, you yeah. know, just goodbye. You know, so that's what we gracious. can do. That's what we can do. Well, let me ask you so completely. On another note, you got to play with Mick Jagger? I recorded on uh, his last solo album. How far out? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was, although a long time ago now, 22 years ago. Oh, it was that long ago? Yeah, She's the Boss. Okay. I don't know if it was his last solo album. I think it was, though. Right, right. Yeah. Nice guy? Uh, well, I didn't know him from that. Uh, in fact, he was uh, in, in Barbados or the Bahamas uh, while we were working hard and in the winter in New York in the snowstorm. It was 93 or 92. Uh, and it was blizzarding in New York. And he, he would call in from his, uh, 
his nice little tropical paradise. Hey, how's things going? I remember, and literally, we'd have to, like, the producer would hold the phone up to the... <laughs> play to the, well. Play, play the speaker, you know, hold the phone up to the speakers, and he would make comments. Uh, need more hi-hat. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I guess when you're Mick Jagger, you get to do that. You know, it was very, it was very funny. But he, I, I had met him before, but... Um, uh, very nice guy, amazing musicians. Um, oh yeah, the fucking Stones. Uh, Jesus. Keith Richards, incredible. Also, someone in the studio. You know, when they used to have, back when there were studios still in New York, and right. and you know, you would sort of make the rounds between the big RCA studio, which was the greatest studio ever, the big room, which was where they recorded all the symphony orchestras. You know, mm-hmm. it must have been the, almost the size of a football field in the RCA building with you know a seventy foot high ceiling. Um, uh, and then the Hit Factory and the, and and these you know these few major studios you could always run into, run into people you know any of these guys at any moment there someone someone like that was in there doing something Steely Dan's studio down down in the village you always ran into great people there it was it was a great time still I think to be uh, I, I to be a musician in New York in those days I think probably it was the same thing here right in in L A everyone there were a few studios where everyone always was but now everyone has home studios why it's so it's so cheap to have you know you get a couple of AKG mics and and your pro tools and and a Focusrite EQ and boom you have a, you know you can sound beautiful it's amazing do you still play much yeah but i mean it's funny most of the stuff i do is um is overseas i mean i find um or if I bring artists over here, but that's very difficult, more difficult now than ever. Over which seas? Uh, overseas to here. I mean, bringing... Oh, we're at, well, Africa. I've been doing a lot of work. Did you in, see Marshall Leon when they played here? No, I, I wasn't them. in the country. I was up in I Seattle. Know. I know them from Lebanon, but I didn't see I got them. to hang out with Fela one time. Yeah, I don't... I know I work with his kids, so I spent <laughs> a fair amount of time in Lagos, but... but I want to know about he was. Uh, I, he, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, I thought it was something like that. You know, I mean, I discovered him back when I did as a kid. You know, and and like, uh, just dug the living fucking god out of it, right? And then around late '80s, somebody brought it was a guy down in Tucson that I knew brought him. So and that it, was when he did that tour '88, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he played the Apollo then you know? too with Egypt '80. And they brought him through fucking uh, Tucson. Yeah. It was Jimmy Cliff opening, yeah. right? You know. And I'm like, fuck oh, that. that I live in Phoenix. I live in Phoenix, right? So, oh, it was just stunning. I'm like, fuck that. You know, Phoenix is an hour and a half from Tucson. I'm like, Beep, here we go. I go down there to the show. And beforehand, like, his wives are out there. And they're, yeah. like, trying to sell me beads and shit. The whole, yeah. the whole vibe was so, like, it was bitching, right? And, it, and then Fela played. Jimmy Cliff was great, right? And then Fela played, like, three songs. You know, each song is, like, 45 minutes yeah. long. His wives are up there doing this humping thing. At one point, I realized, Fela's got a boner, right? He's fucking playing up there, and he's got a fucking boner. He just, it was just like, hey, he's got a boner, right? So I was just like, hey, right on, you know? And uh, after this, that, <clears throat> I knew the dudes that put on the show, and, and they, you know, they knew me, so they're like, Fela wants to get stoned, right? Well, that's certainly something he always wanted to do. Right, and, then, and I, like, I, like to, I like smoke pot, right? So I had some really, really fucking tasty buds. I'm like, well, fuck that shit. Fela's going to get stoned. So I go back there and get stoned with the guy, you know? And it was so cool. He would take these hits, and he's a, kind of a small little dude, you know, and, and, and older than me, you know, but still just in really, really good shape. And he'd take these big fucking hits, and then he would kind of, like, do this 
like yoga almost around the hip, right? You know, just pushing it in, right? And then, and he let out nothing to come out. I was just like, fuck, and tripped out. And finally, at the end of the, you know, it's like just starting to wrap up. And I'm like, you know what? I don't do this very often, man, but I want your fucking autograph. He found a pad, an ink pad, Mm. and he gave me his thumbprint, right? (laughs) And I thought, it was just like, ah, I'm I'm the imperialist, you know? I'm your slave master. I was just really tripped out. And then I was like, you know what? Here you go. I took out a bud. I had to drive home, right, still. So I pulled out a little bud for myself, and then plunk, I laid the rest of my sack on Vela. Yeah. And, you know. He was uh, a very <laughs> amazing... I mean, he is... I've been doing a whole project now with these Arab... A lot of the revolutionary artists from the Arab world that I've worked with the last five years basically doing covers of all his songs oh, because wow. he was so political. So, mm. And now I was just in Nigeria and Kenya recording with some young artists there, too, so uh, it's been amazing, but his family is amazing. His sons, both of them, Femi and Shun. Oh, yeah, Shun's got his dad's band, right? Yeah, yeah, he still it, has it, Egypt. It, there's yeah. someone you got to go and see yeah. if you don't get a chance. He amazing. he should be on tour soon. I I caught him when he was here at the Hollywood Bowl last year. Um, it's an amazing band, Femi. You know, playing at the Shrine. I think one of the three or four highlights of my musical life was playing at the Shrine in Lagos uh, with Femi's band. You know, with like a 21-piece Afrobeat Afro wow. band, they invited me up to do uh, Water Be No Enemy, wow. which is one of my favorite fellow tunes. And, I, you know, I can play it. I've played it with other bands in the States or other places. It's one thing if you're just jamming it with five people. To be up there with fellas old, you know, with his old musicians, 21 of them, with the whole horn section, the percussion, you know. That's a different. Then you know, like yeah. it's just no feeling like that in the world. It would be like being invited up with the JBs, you know, while well, you know <laughs> oh. the, the full Oof. James Brown band. Oof. I mean, wow. which is where where Fela's coming from that. pretty heavily. Yeah, yeah. where it's definitely oh no, from absolutely. Pretty fucking heavily, there's you know? a lot of uh, there's so much. I mean, he he very much changed the sound after and, hearing and, James Brown. And where did he find it? Right here in Los Angeles. Yeah, well, um, one of his, uh, you know, one of the, uh, one of the artists, um, Sandra. I can't think of her last name. Oh yeah, uh, Sandra Isidore, is it? Yeah, uh, who who basically turned him on to the Black Panthers and yeah, also I, I, I just her once yeah she, she I crazy. ran into her I was in I was working at Celebration the big yearly celebration of Fella in Lagos I was there for it. And uh, I was backstage with the whole family. You know, we were all just hanging around, and there she was. I'm like Sandra, and and that that's the woman who turned him on to everything. He he came to America as kind of doing this kind of high life calypso kind of stuff. And by the time he left, he had become Falakuti. You know, right. he got the idea that became Afrobeat, and a large and also became very politicized. And largely it was because of her. She introduced him to the Black Panthers and to the politics, and there she was. And I didn't realize she was here, you know, so I'm hanging out with her. I'm like, so where are you based? He's like, I'm in L.A. You know, it's like, well, that's weird that she's, we have uh, to. She's married to Snoop Dogg Sound. Yes, yes. He's an amazing, amazing guy. He's working with Akon now. Oh. Uh, cool. So, yeah, they were just touring around. He's also based here. Uh, they're, all, they're both based here. And, and she has a band, I think it's called Afrolicious or something. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, that's based here. So I would urge anyone to go see them when they're playing. Uh, and he's an amazing guy, too. Um, uh, his stories of life on the road, not just with Snoop, but, I mean, he worked with Fella. He was Fella because yeah, he worked. He, he, You probably met him. If you met Fella on tour, he probably was doing the sound. And then he's done, uh, he's done um, 
uh, Ak- now he works with Akon, who's one of the few rappers I think today I really love. Uh, you know, uh, these African rappers I think are so much more, they're so much more organic than, than, than the U- American rappers are these days. At least to me, some of the, the ones yeah, that I'm I not, like, I'm it's hard to know. I'm not the biggest hip-hop fan right now. Once it went uh, Canadian, I'm out. <laughs> you mean Drake? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't say Drake. But no, well, I don't know how any other <laughs> Canadian been, uh, rappers. But. Snow or Ice or whatever that okay. guy was from. Oh, Vanilla Ice? Or no, no, there was the was the guy up in uh, Toronto. Uh, there was a white hip-hop guy. Yeah, the, the only one was Vanilla Ice, but who knows? Um, well, this has been a amazing conversation. Uh, we need to wrap up now, but uh, thanks for coming in, Mark. Well, thanks for having me. I think it's great to talk about these things. And... Uh, you know, for people to understand the positive role uh, music can play. I'd just like to say one thing. You know, there's uh, someone I think you know, Lanny Cordola. Yeah. A friend of mine, you know, who's been doing what you were doing. I know mm-hmm. you guys were in touch going to Afghanistan and working with these basically called, uh, you know, Girl with a Guitar. He started a wonderful project, going there and bringing guitars to young girls in Afghanistan. And just when you see the faces of these young girls, but also just kids. I mean, it's not just for girls, but the, the thing specifically is, is to help empower girls because of the situation there. And just see what putting a guitar in a girl's hand can do, you know. Oh, it makes you realize the power of music, and that's what I remember you were doing, you know, in Kurdistan, and, and just it's, it still never blo- stops blowing my mind, the positive role music Ah, yeah, fucking hey, man. I mean, I've done it my whole fucking life yeah, now, you yeah. know? And it's just that. I decided to go to that place. I decided yeah. to be evolutionary, right? Yeah. I decided to go there. Yeah, no, well, we'd already solved all our sure. fucking problems. Yeah. And now, you know, this is what, why, what's the point of civilization? It's yeah. to, you know, to blow our fucking minds and to do it in a groovy fucking way. So. Yeah, yeah. Music, music, you know, that's what you asked at the beginning of the our discussion, you know, what's the point? I guess the point is... To keep searching for the perfect group. Or, like uh, Captain Beefheart said, the point is, there is no point. Hmm. I still think the point is, keep searching for the better groove. Well, that, that you know, that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, man. Thanks a lot well, for thanks, coming in, Mark. Thank you for having me. Today's show was recorded at Winslow Court Studios in Hollywood, California. <laughs>
Press record, cause here less is more than before. Everything in the store costs a quarter. Fast or forward, get a cam recorded. Now there's a berry that's born on every corner. Hot damn ho, here we go again. Got ammo to bust back my trusty pen. The winds are rushing, men and women are lusting. How long do we got till it break? Just depends. On whether Rams the same price as Jim's life. Right becomes wrong, wrong becomes right. We fight for life. Winter breeze blows swift. Every day I get bigger than box wrap for Christmas. Some say, why do I spit my story? Tell them you saw me alone with mics talking about life and... You know, just shooting the breeze. Humbly mumble to you people about the birds and the bees. About the war overseas and they killing our trees. It ain't gonna be nothing left if we hate. Gotta believe. Come on.